everyone and welcome to another Scots Way Hay podcast and today I'm joined by Scott Haynes. Hello Scott, as you take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm here. And Scott is a lecturer in Scottish literature at University of Stirling. But before, um, well first of all I should ask you, how are you getting on in general with all this kind of strange world that we're in at the moment? Um, I'm getting used to it, which is a bit alarming. Um, but, uh, I'm forming habits and patterns that I can see uh, myself trying to maintain when it eventually somehow ends. But um, no, we're keeping on okay. It'll be different. And are you having to um, lecture similar to this or using something similar at the moment? No, we're preparing for some bold experiment in putting everything online. Um, how exactly that will work and whether anyone students included will enjoy it remains to be seen, but who knows? We'll find out soon. We're going to talk today about your excellent book, The Literary Politics, I should say, of Scottish Devolution, Voice, Class and Nation. As you can see, I've made lots of notes, so we may be here for some time. My word. So um, let's start off very simply. Why did you decide you were going to write this book? Well, it comes from many, many years of thinking about a set of connected uh, literary and political questions. Uh, I've been, as your listeners can tell, um, I'm not from Scotland, but I've been here for about 20 years. And at the time I arrived, um, which was in the early 2000s, uh, I was obsessed and very excited by uh, a number of um, provocative and avant-garde Scottish writers who seemed to be making a real political impact. Mm -hmm. in national politics in Scotland. And that was absolutely central to my interest. I don't think I would be in this country. I certainly would have, wouldn't have been inspired to, to do a PhD on James Kelman um, if I hadn't had that experience in the late 90s, um, you know, part of the, the train spotting craze in, my, in some ways. Anyway, from that time, um, when I decided to move here, I became even more immersed um, in the quite tricky political questions that arise in and around Scottish literature, um, I felt a really odd disjunction between the realities of Scottish devolution and the way this new institution uh, was spoken about and the things it did and what the political discourse in Scotland seemed to be focused on um, didn't seem to match up with mm -hmm. the sort of radical um, moral and linguistic and political agenda that I associated with writers who were very frequently presented as the kind of leading lights and sort of uh, symbolic guarantors of the Scottish Parliament. So that's why um, the book begins and the cover shows uh, some imagery from Holyrood itself to think about how Scottish literature as a project, uh, a critical project as well as a creative project, is incorporated literally into the fabric of the building but more deeply into how uh, this renewed Scottish democracy understands itself, how it justifies itself, how it um, advertises itself. So anyway, the disjunction that I was increasingly um, noticing and then increasingly, I guess, bothered by um, into the 2010s was that what Holyrood did and the politics um, of representation um, that it seemed to be about didn't match at all mm. um, what I understood uh, my heroes to be doing 
Um, people like James Kelman and Alistair Gray and Irvin Welsh and Alan Warner and Liz Lockhead and Janice Galloway, and I could go on. All of these writers have been positioned as trailblazers, people who, uh, through their creative intelligence and through their um, artistic achievement, paved the way for a Scottish Parliament um, and led the politicians mm -hmm. to where they needed to be. Um, and that's a story that I call as a kind of shorthand in the book, the dream, the idea that there's a kind of vanguard of writers and critics and intellectuals who are moving ahead of the formal political process and bringing into being um, a new uh, national politics in Scotland. And that the structures we have now through devolution like Holyrood were trailing behind the kind of cutting edge of cultural activism and so on. And there's a good deal of truth to that story, um, but it didn't seem to match what the parliament um, and the public interested in the parliament um, wanted to talk about. So that's really the sort of bee in my bonnet um, that started the book off uh, several years ago. And I've been trying to reconstruct the whole process in which Scottish literature and Scottish politics got entangled really, from the 1960s onward. Because as you say, the 1960s onward, you go back and look at some of the history, um, not just political, but the, the interaction between literature and politics as well. Um, I, I think probably the starting point might be the kind of mid-60s and the Hamilton by-election, 68. I think so, yeah, late 67. Um, there's a really nice, um, this is the kind of thing that uh, fits nicely into a piece of cultural history. Now, the Hamilton by-election is only a few weeks before the first issue of Scottish International Review, which is this new uh, Scottish Arts Council project um, through a new kind of public funding that is going to represent a kind of changing spirit and a new youthful dynamic orientation to Scottishness and Scottish culture, okay. which makes a big splash um, in 1968, but also gets right up the backs of an earlier generation of, of nationalist poets. Um, so there's a really complicated moment there in the late 60s where the SNP, almost from nowhere, are suddenly making a real impact and uh, inspiring lots of uh, especially younger voters to think about independence in a new way. But the poets and intellectuals who have been banging on about independence for decades have quite a lot of distrust for what the SNP represents and what their politics really mean. Um, and that problematic is one that kind of starts the book and um, when I trace right up to the present. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that kind of... Um distrust at that time because people some people won't know that um the SNP won Hamilton which was a huge Labour majority at the time that's um, right Winnie Ewing wasn't it it was Winnie Ewing and and that I guess spooked the traditional Labour Party and uh, other parties that they, suddenly the SNP had to be taken seriously politically but were they perhaps not taken seriously culturally for want of a better term that's true. Um, and you can see some of the reasons why. Um, but already you have to bring into, a, in, into the frame cast a, a cast of characters that um, had almost no kind of common ground or, or means of interacting to understand how this 
played out. The, the reason, to be simplistic about it, that the 1970s saw a really significant move, um, really led by the Labour Party, towards self-government and devolution for Scotland and Wales, was panic that mm -hmm. they were losing seats um, and losing the possibility of a stable majority um, to the SNP. Um, and that's quite easy to reconstruct if you look at how Harold Wilson's government responded to Hamilton uh, and set up uh, a Royal Commission on the Constitution in 1969, which eventually comes to a kind of very muddled and wishy-washy recommendation for a kind of devolution, administrative devolution. That process, which is really centered in Whitehall and almost entirely about electoral expediency, it's focused on the numbers um, and Westminster's balance of power. That's one part of the puzzle that, of course, has tremendous political um, clout attached to it. But within Scotland, um, the cultural scene is largely distrustful of the SNP, yeah. which has won Hamilton um, campaigning on what some of the more excitable poets see as completely um, banal and humdrum campaign promises about prices and the rates and so on. Uh, they've taken all the romance and all the emotional potency out of uh, the dream of independence. Um, and as a kind of practical party politics becomes uh, the central center of, of, of nationalist thinking, as it moves from being a kind of literary uh, and intellectual pursuit to being more and more of a realistic um, and process-oriented kind of endeavor, um, things change. Mm -hmm. And some of the splits and, and tensions within that period, which last well into the 1970s and 80s, um, yeah. are really fascinating to trace. Uh you spoke about, um, was it New Scottish Writing Magazine? A Scottish International. Scottish International. And there are lots of other magazines which throughout the book and throughout this time period come and go quite quickly, some of them. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a very kind of interesting history, quite a rich history, I think, that of the, of the literary magazine, which also brings politics and um, cultural criticism together. Yes, no, that's, um, it's a really interesting uh, period. I'm, I'm actually starting another project on precisely this, looking at um, independently published Scottish cultural and political magazines, primarily of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, mm -hmm. uh, which are really the sort of gymnasium in which um, a kind of um, process is tested out and developed and practiced that eventually becomes hardened into the political structures of contemporary Scotland, certainly as I see them. Um, and if you think of the key magazines, there's a long, long list I could, I could go on about, um, but the, the key magazines uh, in the 1970s and 80s would be Scottish International, Chapman, uh, New Edinburgh Review. Um, into the 1980s, the key ones are Sancrastus and Radical Scotland. Um, and then Edinburgh Review in a slightly different guise in the 1980s becomes... Um, a, a real meeting point for politics, literature, culture, in which um, it is really plausible to see that writers and intellectuals are leading the public debate. They're certainly having more exciting conversations with themselves um, than, for example, the mainstream political parties who are debating devolution in quite different terms at the same time, just down the road. 
Um, and it's in those magazines that you can see different kinds of alliances forming mm-hmm. um, across party lines um, and across the divide between formal politics and culture. Um, and they're a really interesting source for anyone to look at. Um, not that easily uh, accessed these days. We're trying to change that. But if you want to understand how Scotland and the complex interconnections between the cultural sphere and the political sphere and the media sphere operate, um, I would say that's a really good place to look if you're trying to work out where it came from. Because I was thinking as I was reading the book and these magazines were being named, and I do remember some of them, Mm. it would be really interesting to see the first editions because they would all, I would imagine, have some kind of mission statement saying, we are being, we are here to do this and to compare those across time would be quite interesting to see. And also a lot of the characters who were involved, who went on to um, uh, either work in publishing or were writers themselves. Absolutely. That's um, one of the most interesting bits about it. You can look at, there's a real who's who of of Mm. what would later be really the Scottish establishment who were were deeply involved in these magazines and helping to um, set them up and fund them and edit them and um, you know, they were most of them run um, by a ragtag group of, of uh, energetic students who were in it for the thrill. Um, but you can trace a pretty clear line between people who held um, interesting positions connecting different worlds in Scottish culture, politics, media, and so on in this period, and then people who end up in other positions of influence sure. during devolution. Um, but I'm actually, as you talking about them, I'm looking at the cover of the first issue of Scottish International, um, which is a kind of bold uh, purple image playing on the kind of football pun implied by the name Scottish International. Um, And if I even just read you some of the names from this inaugural issue, um, some of them will set off all sorts of other associations for listeners of this August program. Um, But there's others who are probably largely forgotten. And people you wouldn't expect to see in the same venue. Um, so the first issue of Scottish International has on the cover um, F.G. Scott, uh, Stravinsky, uh, Norman McKay, Robert Garrick, Dion Black, Edwin Morgan, uh, Robert Tate, who's the editor, Bob Tate, uh, Alexander Scott, Ian Hamilton Finlay, Robert Crozier, Alan Jackson, Alan Bold, and so on. And if, if you... Uh, immerse yourself in the world of these magazines there's already a few surprises even there and that people who were um, very hostile to Scottish International are actually included in the first issue (laughs) Scottish International partly as an effort to to appease some of the criticism that it received um, some of which was well-merited criticism uh, by especially the kind of old guard of nationalist poets who were still following uh, McDermott's program who are very suspicious of yeah. this new uh, and seemingly elitist um, and um, rather petted project that had all this lavish support from the University of Edinburgh and from uh, the Scottish Arts Council. So I was going to say, uh, were these um, publications mainly based around the universities or was it a kind of mix from elsewhere? It's staggering how many of them are based in almost the same building, which is in the <laughs> University of Edinburgh. I, was, I thought that might be the case. <laughs> it is largely an Edinburgh phenomenon. Mm. Uh, later in its life and its 
amazing um, and dazzling short life Scottish International moves to Glasgow under Tom Buchan, who succeeds Bob Tate as editor. Um, but quite a lot of this activity is centered on the overwhelmingly masculine worlds yeah. of the literary pubs of central Edinburgh, um, the student world of the University of Edinburgh, um, and the geography between. Um, and it, it's a very small world talking, I'm sure, mainly to itself. Uh, many of these magazines are, are selling thousands and thousands of copies or, or making money. Scottish International was financially uh, a disaster. Um, it had to be constantly bailed out uh, by the Scottish Arts Council. Um, but what it set in motion, even simply at the level of provocation, was enormously productive. Um, and it clearly sparked uh, a number of responses, especially in smaller poetry magazines and pamphlets that set out um, some of the terms of opposition and conflict in Scottish literary debate of the next two decades. So people were staking out for and against positions on questions of language, nationalism, um, the Gallic question, and so on, partly because of the stir um, that started in 1968. Um, and were the, because this was, a, to put this in context, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, hmm. uh, in a wider education, the, the, you know, Scottish literature wasn't really being taught in schools, uh, uh, certainly in a wide sense. Um, even in universities, you know, there was only a small um, amount of people that were teaching it at the universities. So, in some ways, this, the idea that this is a small group of people kind of makes sense because it wasn't being wasn't something that people came into in the everyday. No, and it's it's some of the same people. Um, to be perfectly blunt about it. So the first and only Department of Scottish Literature established in Glasgow in 1971. Uh, and the first professor um, in that, in fact, he never made professor, which was a great scandal, um, according to his supporters. But the first leader of that um, institution was uh, the poet and nationalist Alexander Scott, who was in the first issue of Scottish International. And that very small program which actually grew out of a Scottish history program at Glasgow, was a very small and marginal one at that time that had um, a constant battle, frankly, to justify and defend itself. Um, and that affected the way that the early institutionalization of Scottish literary studies developed, um, that there was a degree of winning over um, not only students, but administrators and the wider public as yeah. to the importance and the value of Scottish literature. And I understand completely why the discipline of Scottish literature um, needs to a degree to constantly campaign for itself. And I have sometimes grudgingly been part of those campaigns. Um, the flip side of it, um, which is another thing I'm trying to pursue in the book, is that it can lead to some intellectual cul-de-sacs yeah. and some dead ends in terms of thinking about um, national representation and the relationship between literature and social reality and so on. Um, but I think a lot of um, what I'm grumbling about in the book, you can trace to the precarious institutional footing on which the discipline was based, which is still frankly a factor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the, I, you, the, it deals with voice, class, and nation. There's your kind of subheading, if you like. Um, 
these three are clearly connected, and that's the point you make. But I think we've already seen they don't run parallel to each other. There are all no. sorts of um, uh, overlaps and sometimes complete, you know, departures from each other. For instance, the writers that you were talking about at the beginning that, you know, influenced you originally, like Welsh and, and, and Kelman and Gray. And when I first started reading them, I always thought of them as more as internationalists than anything national. I think maybe almost nationalism came to join them rather than the other way around. Is that I something that's true. you agree with? Very largely, yes. Um, in some of these, with, with some of these writers, it's a very complicated case, and um, I could really tie myself in knots thinking about James Kelman, who I, I wrote a whole PhD about this. Um, and I think there's some kind of um, some unbalanced and <laughs> unbalanced. There's some unreconciled tensions even within the way Kelman talks about some of this stuff. But I think you're right to say that the generation of writers we were alluding to, and Tom Leonard would really be um, the central figure yeah. to me. Um, and Tom Leonard had really no truck with Scottish nationalism and was um, increasingly hostile towards it, um, especially in his later years. It's, it's the, the insistence on the validity of a Glasgow voice or of working class speech really has not nothing but next to nothing to do with asserting Scottish nationhood. Um, but it's simply a fact that um, the language in which many of these writers were working carries with it that sort of double signification. That sounds too jargonistic, but it conveys at one and the same time a condition of class um, stigma and a condition of national specificity. So it's socially grounded in two different dimensions, in class and in nation. And at various points, in various contexts, you can play up one or the other yeah. for various effects. And one thing I'm kind of grumbling about in the book is the way in which working class speech was effectively nationalized and you could say appropriated by predominantly middle class nationalist intellectuals so that it became the talisman and the symbol of a new kind of vernacular Scottishness mm -hmm. that was there to mobilize uh, mass support for devolution in keeping with a particular image of Scottish nationhood as being fundamentally working class. There's a, a construction of what I call national working classness mm -hmm. in the 1980s. Um, largely to fit with the anti-Thatcherite mood, where there is, especially from about the late 80s to the early 90s, a very strong social consensus and uh, an active anger in the country as various elections roll through without yeah. uh, leaving too much of a mark for the Scottish voter, whereby uh, asserting Scotland's rights and protesting against Thatcherism are seen really as one and the same. Um, and it's in that period especially that I think this national working classness and this vernacular language become charged with a certain kind of political symbolism that is enormously productive and effective, but which also tends to marginalize writing and literary debate that isn't really about nationalism and that actually cuts against nationalism. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to capture in one part of the book. So, 
the, the, in the writer's view, the, you, you, there's a chapter, chapter five, looking at um, And the Land Lay Still, which is James Robertson's epic, I think we can call it that, novel, which is looking at this period in history as well, really. Mm. Um, so why did you want to, to take, it, it's the one book that you devote a whole chapter to. Um, why right. that book and why did you decide that this was so important to look at? The first thing to say is it's just a, such an amazing achievement. Um, I mean, I, I spent quite a lot of that chapter picking holes, I'm afraid, in, in things that End the Landlay still can't quite do. But that's no fault of the author, um, who has to be credited to James Robertson for trying to write um, the big, ambitious historical novel of these times. And I think it's a you know, really tremendous achievement that I would recommend to anybody. It's better than lots of history books for understanding these developments. I would completely um, agree. I mean, after reading the chapter, I just wanted to, I haven't read it for a couple of years. I'd love hmm. to go back and read it again because um, well, one thing is it does stand out because no one else had even really attempted this. No. And, um, and the, the attempt in itself is, is, is something else. Yeah. Um, however, <laughs> yeah. the thing I have to say that, that might not please um, James, who I have an uh, enormous amount of respect for, is that he set himself a task which is actually impossible. And he set himself the task of weaving all the complexity of that period. And he doesn't skimp, you know, he doesn't cheat by cutting corners and just trying to look at how this particular strata of society negotiated these changes. He's trying to write a truly national story, yeah. which means there's a kind of all-embracing impulse to the book. It's a social novel which is trying to um, bring into its canvas every corner, every faction, every argument, every identity that is Scottish and weave them into one kind of integrated narrative. And he's not um, naive about that at all. There's lots and lots of references. The whole structure of the novel is full of kind of winks and acknowledgments of how partial and provisional and subjective it is to try and construct a kind of continuous weave out of those elements. Um, but the impulse um, of the novel ultimately is, I think, to vindicate the movement for devolution and precisely the way in which that movement, in which James Robertson played a really significant role, yeah. uh, partly through um, his own literary work, but also in producing the magazine Radical Scotland with many others, um, which was to, uh, in a sense, institutionalize that particular image of an ordinary um, Scottish society, which is highly intelligent, sensitive, and humane, completely distinct from Thatcherite values, um, and throbbing with political debate. And that's one of the difficulties and challenges of writing a political novel that tries to be a social novel, Mm -hmm. is that he has to populate the novel with an endless number of political nerds <laughs> and anoraks and journalists and lecturers and labor counselors um, who are politics day and night. Um, not all the characters are like that. Yeah. But to, to bring the social world of Scotland directly into contact with the political developments that he's documenting, um, you, you need to almost collapse Scotland into Scottish politics so that really... Scottish politics is what Scotland is, in a sense, in that book. 
It's interesting you said that the Scottish Literature Department um, at Glasgow came out of a Scottish history, um, you know, course, because this book, as you say, is mm. as much history as it is literature. And it seems to be, and that's why I think it is worth reading um, because of that, it covers a lot of things that I had only known slightly and, and it leaves you open to go and uh, explore elsewhere. Um, so do you think it is that... It, it's such a difficult thing to try and do that others just haven't, or do you think actually they're not that interested in writing that story? Because I'm thinking that we we think of a lot of um, Scottish novelists writing about the margins, actually the people that maybe aren't in Anderlangley still. Sure. Do you think that actually the other writers might say, well, uh, I'm not interested in the the political ins and outs I'm actually interested in a bigger picture or in a, an individual's story. But in a way, that's, that's the kind of structural difficulty, is that the story that that novel is trying to tell cannot be told through the prism of um, a small, marginal world. And in a way, the book is structured as a whole bunch of marginal worlds. You have the world of um, a kind of bohemian folky Edinburgh, mm. just full of poets and nationalists and musicians and whiskey. And then you have, in a whole other strand of the novel, this kind of demi-monde of spies and special branch and the alcoholic nightmares of somebody who is involved in trying to uh, subvert the movement toward nationalism. Uh, and you have all these kind of shadowy... Um, easily missed worlds that aren't exactly mainstream Scottish society. Yeah. And the challenge of the book is to join them up. And it's the joining that is the primary purpose. So you couldn't really tell the same sort of story looking at just one of these worlds. You could maybe tell a more, uh, a more textured and novelistic story by doing that. But it's the architecture, it's the joining of bits together into one single national story that I think is the driving impulse of the book for good and ill. Mm -hmm. The, 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 to come back to your question, I think I, I can't see anyone improving on this effort. Um, people could write about the same issues and topics, and I'm sure they will from different angles or on a smaller scale. Um, but I think, and I'm maybe a bit pessimistic, one reason I value the book so highly is that I'm not that convinced there's a huge appetite uh, among readers of fiction to understand these processes. Mm. Um, which is one of the reasons that Robertson has a really big challenge is that he can't refer offhandedly to um, you know, Jim Sillers or Donald Dewar and just have the reader know who he's talking about. He has to spend a couple of paragraphs explaining who these people are, where they fit within the constitutional debate at a certain time, and so on. Um, I'm a nerd who's been involved in this question for a long time, so I don't need that, but lots of other people would. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a really difficult impulse in the book to try and explain, like a school teacher almost, what it is he's now going to use as the material of his art. And that, that's really difficult. So there are the other um, writers that you go on to look at, um, you've mentioned them yourself, um, are Welsh, um, Trainspotting in particular, um, Kelman and uh, A.L. Kennedy. So this is moving into a more recent history. Um, and why did you decide that these were three that you wanted to focus on? Primarily because um, they, in different ways, connect very directly to 
um, what became the kind of central motif of the book, which is about voice. Mm. Yeah. Voice as a question of democratic representation um, that can also morph into a kind of fairly empty symbolism, um, voice as a kind of mascot, as a kind of tokenism, as a kind of uh, spectacle um, that signifies in a sort of artificial way. Um, but these are three writers who talk in a sort of directly relevant and thematic way about voice and who use English in very different ways. Um, and that was one thing I wanted to kind of capture. Um, there's a lot of experimentation and variety in 90s Scottish fiction um, that is playing around in very bold ways with what a Scottish writer sounds like on the page. Yeah. Um, and there was never any real expectation that someone like A.L. Kennedy um, would not write in that crystalline, beautiful English prose. Um, and what she has to say about voice um, and language in the novels that I'm describing um, is, I think, all the more striking because of that. Uh, with Kelman and Welsh, it's in some ways more straightforward. Kelman clearly paves the way for Welsh, and Welsh would acknowledge that. Um, but I was struck in that perhaps slightly provocative reading of Trainspotting by how easily um, the kind of pyrotechnics of Trainspotting, um, all the excitements and, and thrills that I got from the language of that book when I was 16 back in Calgary, um, how easily they lend themselves to a kind of MTV commodification of youth culture, of anger, of defiance, all the ways in which that novel, sometimes knowingly, Mm -hmm. um, aligns itself with a kind of punk energy that is sneering at you and winking at you about the ways that it's going to sell itself out. Um, and the whole question of selling out is at the center of Trainspotting. Um, and it's at the center of, of Reverend Welsh's career. Um, and I think if you read that novel very slightly against the grain, um, as a really major cultural phenomenon, yeah. as one that made a truly global impact through the film. Um, it, it tells you something about the way in which Scottishness, uh, the way in which the vernacular, the way in which this kind of edgy, marginal, cool culture was packaged and marketed at a particular moment, just as Scotland was reinventing itself politically. That's what I was going to come to. Do you think the the link politically then, because politicians have used um, various imagery, but I don't think they use train spotting as a kind of you know flag in the same way as they did Braveheart or something like that. But so, what do you think the impact was? A kind of um, self confidence and another type of Scotland, maybe. I think so. I mean, there's. I'm a little bit. Um skeptical about the school of, of cultural confidence that you know the main thing about all these writers and their achievements is that it gives ordinary Scottish people confidence in being Scottish and, and speaking in a Scottish way and so on. I can understand that there's a degree of truth in that, in kind of diminishing people's sense of linguistic insecurity and so on. But I'm more inclined to think that the very flexibility of Scottishness in that book, the very flexibility of identity in that book. If you think of some of the um, sort of famous scenes uh, from the book and the film are moments when the hero or anti-hero Mark Renton is showing himself to be uh, not only a chameleon, but a kind of scheming shapeshifter. 
Yeah. He can change his voice, change his attitude, change the way he comes across, for example, in court or in a nightclub or to Francis Begbie to get himself out of a jam. Yeah. And it's his kind of inventiveness, his playfulness, his slipperiness in respect of identity and a voice um, that allows him to navigate these shifting and often dangerous currents, always with a kind of individualist ethic. He's always looking out for himself, um, always coexisting with his so-called mates, as he always calls them. Um, there is a really profound and I think deliberate emphasis on the self-interested qualities of these characters um, that fits with the way they adopt identities and voices as a pose, as a costume, as a ploy, um, as a move in a game um, in ways that cuts across the more idealistic talk about cultural confidence and reclaiming our voices um, that was happening uh, in virtually the same period. Yeah. And what do you, the conclusion that li the, li the conversation between literature and politics is one which is obviously ongoing, um, but do you see it, even since you finished the book, do you see this situation changing? Is it always going to be changing? Is there, uh, is there an end game in this uh, situation? Well, the end game to some of the energies that we began with in, in Hamilton 67 and Scottish International um, is probably Scottish independence. Yeah. If, if that's, you know, that, that's the way that they're going to be, so to speak, resolved, although it wouldn't resolve the kind of underlying cultural tensions and problems. Um, really, you're asking me a really imponderable question. Yeah. I guess is, I am. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's it's what I've been wrangling with myself, which is you know where does devolution go, and does its meaning depend on where it ends and how it lands? Um, and and writing the book in the wake of the indie ref, and I refer a few times to some of the commonalities between these seventies eighties debates and the indie ref, was a really fascinating period because there was a moment in which. Um, you know, devolution couldn't have seemed a duller subject. <laughs> it was kind of yesterday's stale bread, and people were asking the question, um, do we want um, something different? Do we want full independence? Um, or do we want more powers? Do we want something else? But something I find very striking is that there's a lot of really interesting thinking and theory about devolution. Yeah. Um, you look at writers like Stephen Maxwell and Tom Nairn and Christopher Harvey and many, many others, uh, Isabel uh, Lindsay, um, going back into the 70s. But devolution, now that it's a living reality, um, it doesn't seem to attract very much intellectual attention, certainly among cultural critics. So the, the sort of final point that I want to kind of um, leave readers, certainly in my own discipline with, is that we need to understand devolution as a cultural condition. It isn't just a kind of stepping stone to something else. Yeah. It isn't just this sort of corridor between two rooms that we're currently stuck in. Um, we have to think about the specific formation of culture and identity and power that devolution is, uh, not only because we're in it and we're probably going to be in it for a little while longer, uh, but because it is the structure of our political and to an extent our economic life. Um, so if we want to be engaged social critics as well as our historians, we have to understand um, the way that politics and language and literature formed this cultural condition that we call devolution. And 
I guess um, what I was thinking about was that the the writers, um, a James Robertson aside, even with Indie Ref, not a lot of people, there wasn't a lot of literary um, expression or feeling afterwards. You know, it was almost, you know, we, we talk about um, Kelman's novels and Welsh's novels, and then we could go forward to a lot of people who um, are influenced by them. And it seems like, well, they're not engaged with politics directly. As you say, this stepping stone or room that we that some people see as we can, we're not out of yet, they just don't engage with that because it's like, well, we might as well talk about something else because we're stuck. We're kind yeah. of culturally stuck, if you know what I mean. Exactly, yeah. And I think that harkens back to um, some of the debates that were happening in the 60s and 70s again, where you had um, the more kind of um, mystical and idealistic um, nationalist poets, people in McDermott's mm. wake, who, who were not really interested in the Scotland they could see out the window. In fact, they had a lot of contempt for really existing Scotland and really existing Scottish culture. They were aiming for something they took from A Drunk Man Looks at the Thistle. Uh, they were aiming for this kind of shining icon of an enormously complicated and conflicted antisysical country that um, had nothing to do with their earthly grind. Um, yeah. And they were reaching beyond and kind of transcending really existing Scotland, which almost none of them had anything good to say about um, because they wanted to reach some kind of higher, um, kind of spiritualized Scotland that would be also revolutionary and also traditional and also Celtic and also a million other kind of incompatible things. Um, but in inattention to really existing Scottish life, the way power actually operates in the country um, is what I think connects those two mentalities. And I know there's a very strong impulse among uh, contemporary supporters of independence that they, they don't want to get too bogged down in the structures that they're fighting. They want to think about what comes next and they want to suspend too much debate or critique about um, political parties and alliances and so on in the here and now, because we can tackle all that after independence. Mm. We just have to kind of suspend hostilities and bite our tongues and we'll deal with that after. And if the very long protracted saga of Scottish devolution teaches you anything is that you can't defer those problems. You yeah. carry them with you. They are this kind of baggage <laughs> that weighs you down and, and contours the landscape through which you're moving constantly. Um, and that's, I think, another reason to understand the way in which um, the Scotland we live in now was formed. And it was formed in things like magazines and novels, not just in Parliament. Um, but we have to see the way in which Scottish writing and Scottish politics formed each other, yeah. justified each other, valorized each other in this process. I think that's what's fascinating about the book is that it made me rethink um, the, the, particularly the politics of devolution, but also this idea that you've got these, if you think of a writer being engaged with um, what they're writing about, sometimes without even realizing that they are, you know, you have to be affected by uh, what's around you. You've got this body of literature, the, the stuff that I loved and I've read, or like yourself, I was really influenced in, that is in this period where a lot of people are constantly looking to an end or the next thing that's happening, you know, and are never quite dealing with what's happening now. But yet, literature was still being made, art was still being made. And to really understand this period that we're in now, that's, I think, the best place to go and find it. That's what I took from the book, anyway. 
I think that's a really interesting reading of it. And it, and it makes you think about um, and hope for <laughs> somebody writing a, a really smashing uh, novel of the indie ref, for example. Uh, I'm yeah. trying to write something about some of the novels that took place uh, or that were published during the indie ref, um, which are, I mean, most of them closer to propaganda, closer to kind of intervene in the debate than really digest it in the way that James Robertson has. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, if any of these problems resurface, if there's a really um, significant literary um, exploration of the indie ref. Well, Scott, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for uh, giving us your time. Thank you. And uh, I must say, I could have talked about this for much, much longer. We may have a second one. I don't know if we come back to it because there's so much in the book that uh, we just haven't covered. But uh, hopefully we've given you a, a, a taste of it. And so you mentioned that you're looking uh, into the magazines more closely. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, this is um, a new project called the Scottish Magazines Network, which uh, myself and Malcolm Petrie at the University of St. Andrews are doing. That'll start in December. And it's going to be a chance, if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, to learn all you could want to know about what these magazines were, who edited them. We're going to uh, interview a bunch of people involved in the magazines. Um, and uh, hopefully a book will emerge from that that tries to pinpoint um, the influence of these um, quite amazing productions in what came after. Fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you very much. Um, all the best to you during this uh, strange time. And we'll be back soon with someone else. Cheers. Mm -hmm.